If you've listened to the last few episodes, you'll know that I took a little break from the task of researching in January, instead doing some readings to accompany the previous episode on Henry Lawson. Thank you to those who let me know they enjoyed the poems and the short stories. But now, feeling somewhat refreshed, I've found another brilliant story from our past to share with you today. We return to the convict theme. I recounted a very brief background to how and why the convict transportation system came to Australia, and specifically Van Diemen's Land, now known as Tasmania, at the beginning of the Cascades episodes, that's episode 26 and 27. So if convicts in Australia is a new topic to you, you might like to head back there and listen to that overview first, if you like. Even though the Cascades episodes focused on women convicts, there is enough of an idea to introduce you to the system. The men, of course, had somewhat different experiences, and as numbers increased and a percentage of the male convicts continued to re-offend once in the colonies, there were new and harsher penal settlements set up to discourage the bad behaviour and to further punish. Being a convict was a harsh life, whether you were on your first sentence or transferred to places of secondary punishment, and not everyone was prepared to just knuckle down and do their time quietly. Convicts attempting or effecting escape was a pretty common story, but they didn't really have any place to escape to, unless they could jump ship somehow. And the attempts often ended in disaster, or at least the ones we know about, we do a good line in the gothic horror of escaped convicts turning to cannibalism, for example. There were those who attempted to leave the settlements and walk to freedom somehow, <laughs> some even making for China. Clearly geography was not their strong point. Many tried but were unable to survive in the unfamiliar wilds of Australia, starving or turning back to their point of departure before they starved. Unless, you know, the cannibalism... <laughs> I've really got to take a look at some of those stories soon. It might boost my listening figures right up there with the true crime podcasts. <laughs> some escapees made progress, and some even a new life, particularly if they were helped by the local indigenous peoples where they were, people who clearly knew how to recognise the abundance in the land, in a seasonal system they had refined over millennia, like William Buckley and the Watharong people. But in the same environment, most convicts and other incoming Europeans failed to recognise the useful resources around them, or to know how to manage them for safe eating or for sustained use. Some convicts had the confidence to attempt an escape by sea, but again, this was a risky and difficult endeavour. Australia was a long way by sea from anywhere else held by the British, or indeed many other colonial powers, most escaped convicts wanted to return to the country they'd left halfway around the world. And if they did survive and make it to somewhere, most were recognised for runaways and recaptured. And the legal system, already harsh and unkind, cut them little slack. Most paid the ultimate price for their crack at freedom. I guess if the choice is a grim life in servitude, for some the risk must have seemed worth it. But some did succeed in making their escape, at least for a time, and today we will be talking about one such convict, a man who just could not bear the idea of a life in exile, away from his family, and who was willing to take all necessary risks, including death, to try and return to them. And his efforts were extraordinary. 
I think you'll enjoy hearing about this Houdini-like convict, a man the authorities had trouble keeping hold of. So in a moment, we'll begin William's story. But first, I'd like to welcome Shelley Yu to the Australian Histories Podcast Patreon family. Thanks for signing up to support the show, Shelley. And a big and grateful thank you also to Tim T, Derek D, Malcolm F and Fraud J for sending through one-off contributions in the last couple of months. It's extremely kind of you and I'm delighted because it means you're really loving the work. I didn't record anything new in January and some of you sent this through last December, so thanks once again. Indeed, thanks to all my past and present supporters. I really appreciate your patronage. Okay, so now let's find out about William, shall we? Transported now from my native shore. They told me from my aged parents and from the maiden whom I adore. I've been a prisoner at Port Macquarie at Norfolk Island and Emu Plains at Castle Hill and Cursed to Gabby. At all those settlements, I've worked in chains. But of all places, I've found damnation and penal station. In telling William's story, he's most infamously known to history as William Swallow. But throughout his entanglement in the convict system, he used a number of aliases, at least six known apparently. But it seems his birth name was actually William Walker. So we'll start there. In reading about William and his exploits, I thought he seemed to have much more than his fair share of luck as he navigated the penal system. I mean, I guess you might say he began with a measure of bad luck in being caught and fed into the convict system in the first place. But given his actions, his story may well have been a lot shorter and less exciting than it turned out to be. I think it might be Netflix material. In retelling this story, I am drawing heavily from a book written by Warwick Hurst, an archivist and author of a number of books related to the convict era. This one was titled The Man Who Stole the Cypress, A True Story of Escape, and the publishing details will of course be in the reference list on the australianhistoriespodcast.com.au website. Hurst's principal sources for resurrecting the story are noted in his book, including many British and Australian official records and newspaper reports and the like. He's recorded a lot of detail about the incidents, and I would recommend following up with his book if you love the story. More recently, an English teacher and history buff found some relevant new evidence in the most wonderful serendipitous way, so I'll include that amazing update to the story later on too. Our convict-to-be, originally William Walker, was born near Sunderland in the northeast of England in 1792. Sunderland was a port and shipbuilding town, and William undertook a sailor's apprenticeship there, beginning on the colliers transporting coal to various ports, including London. He would have become very familiar with seaports and working with varied crews, and his job would have given him an excellent start on his navigation and sailing skills. The North Sea around his home port would have given him plenty of experience sailing in poor weather and rough seas too. But, as was the experience of many a poor merchant sailor in the early 1800s, it seems that he was pressed into service with the Royal Navy, 
then still at war with France and desperate for skilled seamen to man the warships. Impressment could occur legally if the military was in need of men, a sort of forced conscription. And Wiki states the Navy press gangs, if in need of men, could press, quote, eligible men of seafaring habits between the ages of 18 and 55 years, unquote. The press gangs might commandeer crews straight off ships returning to port before they could even disembark, or they might scour the portside taverns or grab likely-looking lads off the streets. It was a dangerous time to be stumbling through a seaport in any state of inebriation, particularly if you had tattoos that might identify you as a sailor. (laughs) The war machine was ruthless, and the men gathered up were held and sent to naval ports to be assigned as naval crew. Hurst suggested that the experienced and work-hardened sailors operating out of the northern coal ports were particularly attractive to the Navy. He notes that so many men were pressed into service over those war years that there were labour shortages that directly affected the coal trade. They knew sailors used to working on the colliers were hardy and resourceful, and they would be valuable crew for the naval ships, even if unwilling at the beginning. Discipline was harsh in the Navy, the work both difficult and demanding, and the fighting at sea particularly dangerous, indeed barbaric. Casualties and injury rates were high. And Hurst also suggested that disease could rage through the ships, and this was a significant killer in those years too. So the young William, then probably around 23 years old, served two years in the Napoleonic Wars, And as the first indicator of the good fortune that often followed him, he seems to have got through that horror unscathed. But as that war drew to an end, and the surviving soldiers and sailors were discharged, unemployment at home then became an issue. William, though, was lucky enough to get work as a master on a vessel trading along the coast, and later he served on a ship that was operating in the Mediterranean. He married and settled his family in Sunderland, and seemed to be on a good path, but when the ship he was working on was wrecked, his employment disappeared, and afterwards work opportunities were irregular. Now, whether he was always a little bit dodgy, or whether his intermittent work now drove him to it, in October of 1820 he was arrested for theft, the stolen goods valued at ten pence. This amount is significant, because we spoke in the Cascades episodes about the abhorrence the middle and upper classes had of the raging crime rate across the country, and rather than deal with the likely causes of poverty, they relied instead on the perhaps surprisingly ineffectual, punitive and merciless sentencing in the criminal codes of the time. Hurst records there were 255 offences listed that would warrant the death penalty, Many were property crimes, and many these days would be considered petty. William was fortunate, because his ten-pence crime was deemed petty larceny, so he would escape the death penalty. Instead, if found guilty, he would likely be imprisoned in England or transported. The system was specifically designed to punish severely, and better still, if you could banish the criminal from the country and rid themselves of a problem, all the better, hence the convict transportation system. We have spoken in earlier episodes about how some convicts were perhaps able to gain some benefit from transportation to a new colony once their term was served, but many were devastated and felt the punishment unbearable, being removed from all things familiar and cut off from family. Transportation was as bad as a death sentence for some, and so it would prove for William, who would risk all to avoid his fate. 
He was imprisoned until his trial in January, and in the end he pleaded guilty, perhaps hoping that that would encourage some leniency. But as he might have anticipated, he was sentenced to seven years' transportation. William was loaded onto a ship to take him south to London, where those being transported to Van Diemen's Land would be gathered and assigned to a transport ship there. He must have immediately started thinking on how he could escape this awful fate, and it seems he was less fearful of death than he was of banishment to the other side of the world. When he found himself in the ship hold for this trip south, he noticed a store of cork, and this prompted the formulation of a cunning plan. <laughs> he discovered that a fellow prisoner was similarly desperate. Indeed, he was determined to jump overboard and take his own life, rather than be sent to a penal colony. William was not quite so suicidal, but he was prepared to try his luck in the water too. But he took the precaution of stuffing his shirt with the cork to enhance his buoyancy. Ingenious! A ship made cork floaty! When the prisoners were next brought up on deck, an opportunity arose when his fellow convict jumped overboard. With all the crew's attention then drawn to him, William quietly slipped himself over the opposite side. Sadly, his accomplice did drown soon afterwards, but William was drawn away by the current. He spent five hours in the water, which is no mean feat in the North Sea, and in an amazing stroke of luck, he was spotted and retrieved from the water by a passing ship. He told the captain he was a sailor who'd fallen from the rigging and been left for dead, and he was convinced by that story and allowed William to simply disembark when they reached London. You can see now why those gaudy convict uniforms might have been useful. William found work in the ports there for a couple of months, and then got work on a vessel that was heading north, and was able to make his way back to his family. But with this unwise move, his run of luck petered out. William Walker was by then calling himself William Brown, and he'd grown a beardy disguise. <laughs> But as a rather tall and conspicuous man, predictably, he was recognised in his hometown, and he was soon re-arrested. This time he was charged with, quote, being found at large before the expiration of his sentence, unquote. And he was once again sent to London to await transportation to Van Diemen's Land to restart his original sentence. While they awaited transport, he was placed in a prison hulk on the Thames, along with about 475 other convicts, all shackled with heavy leg irons to assist with security. The prison hulks, you may remember from one of the Kelly episodes, as this was an idea that was imported to the colonies, were retired ships, no longer seaworthy, that were moored along the Thames to house prisoners, now overflowing from the crowded prisons on shore. The men were kept in cramped and pretty unpleasant conditions on board, but in daylight they were often taken on shore still shackled, to work in chain gangs in the surrounding areas. William was recorded as working from his prison hulk for four months before his time came to sail south. Well, his family must have been devastated, and probably a little frustrated by his unwise return north. After such a brilliant escape and survival story, could he not have sent a secret message and have them meet him somewhere less risky? More effort was required in the beard and general disguise, sadly. So, in June of 1821, he and around 170 other convicts cast off to Van Diemen's Land on the Malabar, a three-masted transport ship chartered by the government for the task. 
Fortunately, the Malabar seems to have been a well-managed and regulated transport, and those on board were well-fed and exercised, with little sickness causing them problems. If weather permitted, they were daily released for time above board, out of the damp fog of the dark lower decks, so they were luckier than many prisoners who had been transported by contractors in the years prior. They were also kept busy, given shipboard tasks such as scrubbing decks, and those who appeared willing, industrious and well-behaved were given more chores and more time on deck. This indulgence, thought to motivate the men to good behaviour, had mixed results though. Hurst recorded that theft on board remained a major problem, as well as fighting amongst the prisoners, and insubordination. <laughs> the usual punishments were meted out to the offenders, such as having heavier leg irons fitted or being lashed. But he noted that William did not appear to be amongst those punished during the voyage. Indeed, he was recorded as having his leg irons removed. With his substantial sailing experience, if he had shown an inclination to be cooperative, they may have welcomed the help he could provide the crew. The ship's surgeon, Thompson, recorded that there were six prisoners afforded that privilege, noting they were, quote, allowed to assist with the sailors as they appear to be fond of it and behaved well during the passage, unquote. Thompson was careful to manage his charge as well, and 121 days after setting sail, the Malabar arrived in Hobart, with all his convict charges alive and well. At that time, convicts arriving in the new colony were generally assigned as farm workers, or labourers on the government work gangs, unless they had a particular skill that could be better applied elsewhere. And surprisingly, if you recall from the Cascades episodes... In the early days, there was no accommodation supplied for the new arrivals. They were expected to find digs in town and return to the work gangs each morning. So in fact, they had a fair amount of autonomy once they landed, and they could find additional paid work outside the mandated government work hours if they liked. Though there were strict rules about their movements and behaviour, and they were all expected to attend church service on Sunday, if they couldn't find lodgings, they might be housed in the Hobart jail. But as Hurst noted, obviously this system was wide open to abuse. Quote, Some worked hard, hoping to be rewarded with a ticket of leave, while others used their spare time gambling, drinking, fighting, plotting robberies and planning escapes. Unquote. Well, surprise, surprise. With convict barracks, which were then being built close to completion, the authorities were hopeful that they could soon rein in these more antisocial activities. It seems likely that William's long history working on ships would have seen him assigned to work around the shipyards, and he worked steadily without coming to the attention of the authorities for the next eight months. But it appears sometime around June, the desire to make his way back to England became too strong. He and a fellow convict named John Wilkinson and three others stole a schooner from the Derwent River and made their way north to Sydney, where the group then separated. William and John were soon arrested there, suspected of being amongst those who took the schooner, which had quickly been reported stolen, and was being looked for in the Sydney regions. Despite claiming they were innocent men, named John Shields and William Anderson, their physical descriptions were sent to Hobart, and matching the records there, their convict identities were discovered. The Hobart records indicated William was allocated convict number 323, and recorded him as a mariner, 29 years old, 5 foot 8 and 3 quarter inches tall, with blue eyes and brown hair, and having a number of scars on his chin and nose. 
So despite the two concocting a rather good backstory of being crewmen from a wrecked whaling ship, and despite their new aliases, they were rumbled and sent back to Van Diemen's Land in manacles. Keeping a record of scarring and the like, including pockmarks, birthmarks, moles and tattoos, for example, provided valuable additional data for identification in an era before photographs or fingerprints were common, for example. And it always astounds me how men were caught and identified so easily in those days before Facebook and CCT cameras everywhere. But I guess in the new convict colony, every free man was known and every stranger would raise suspicion. Still, I'm impressed that the message about the schooner's theft beat them to Sydney. It's hard to imagine how the world ran before our Wi-Fi and instant communication, and yet the convict system seemed incredibly efficient and ruthlessly dogged in tracking down the escapees. So back they went, though not without some drama along the way. Sailing late September on the Deveron, they experienced very heavy weather in the Bass Strait, and then anchored for several days in a bay on the east side of Bruny Island, trying to wait out the worst of the storms. But conditions were fierce. They lost three anchors, one small boat, and then the main topmast broke. One poor sailor was washed overboard while trying to cut the associated ropes free. Apparently the captain jumped into the water to try and save him, but the poor man drowned, and the captain was hauled back on deck worse for wear. With the broken mast still dragging in the storm, they needed to cut it free before they were all swamped. William had been released to assist the crew in managing the ship in these dangerous conditions, and he now undertook a heroic action. Climbing aloft with an axe, he cut the dragging mast and ropes away from the ship. But the weather still looked to smash the damaged ship on the shore, and the captain decided they must try and sail the damaged ship into deeper waters and indeed they were able to limp back to Hobart in a couple of days with no further casualties. William had once again proven his usefulness to the authorities, but his good deed didn't seem to bring him any good karma in return on this occasion. Still, they were all lucky to have survived. He and Wilkinson were tried in Hobart in early October for the theft of the boat and the attempted escape, they both pleaded guilty and were sentenced to 150 lashes and to serve the remainder of their sentences at Macquarie Harbour, a truly dreaded place of secondary punishment. As if Hobart, on the other side of the globe from his family, was not a bad enough destination for William, Macquarie Harbour would be worse. The dreaded Sarah Island in Macquarie Harbour was set up by Governor Sorrell in 1822. It was intended as a place that was inescapable the harbour being surrounded by dense bush and being many hundreds of miles from any other settlement where the prisoners' days were filled with punishing work in exceptionally harsh conditions, a place where the rod was never spared. It was so awful it was considered to be, and was deliberately designed that way actually, so horrific it would be considered only just short of death as a punishment. Marcus Clark wrote of Macquarie Harbour in The Seizure of the Cyprus, and I've abridged it here, quote, Governor Sorrell designed the station for the most irreclaimable of the desperados. The discipline had gradually increased in severity until it became a hideous terrorism, which often drove its victims to seek death as a means of escape. The place is most dismal, wild and barren, the scrub and undergrowth impenetrable, 
and from the swampy ground around the settlement arises noisome and death-dealing exultations. Once sent to the hell, as the abode of doom was termed by the prisoners, return was all but hopeless. The iron-bound coast, the dismal and impassable swamps, the barren and rugged mountain ranges combined to render escape impossible. Of the many unfortunates who made the attempt to regain their freedom, all save some eight or nine died or were retaken. The life of a convict at this hideous place of punishment was one continual agony. In those times the notion of reclaiming human creatures by reason and kindness was unknown." Unquote. So re-offenders, and the worst of the worst, were sent there, to be broken and deterred from ever offending again, though it doesn't seem it achieved that end, except to facilitate the early death of many with long criminal records. It's interesting whether these places, or indeed any of the harsh punishments of the time, really ever did serve to deter people from committing a crime. I recently listened to an interview with Don Weatherburn, former director of the New South Wales Bureau of Crime Statistics and Research, who went on to write a book on his years of experience, research and reflections, called The Vanishing Criminal, and I'll put a link to the podcast of his interview in the reference list. He noted a few interesting things. Firstly, that most persons undertaking criminal acts usually fail to stop and consider the consequences much at all, no matter what laws, punishments and judges' rulings are current. Those that might do so generally assume they won't get caught anyway, so again the deterrence fails to work its hoped-for magic. He reports that in all the jurisdictions he studied, the main driver in reductions in crime came not from ramping up the severity and harshness of punishments, but from the changes in the environments the potential criminals live in. Either reductions from changes in the push and pull factors, such as the availability of drugs or mental health support, for example, or the introduction of electronic ignition disabling in cars, which simply meant stealing them was now much more difficult, or the move to a cashless society, making the hold-up of stores much less lucrative, for example. It was very interesting to reflect on. You'd have to say, looking back, if the people in poverty in William's time, a good percentage of whom were committing criminal acts to support and feed their families, were given some appropriate support from their community and governments, that the numbers of criminals needing transportation in the first place may have been a great deal lower. While some going to Macquarie Harbour were of the hardened criminal type, others were petty thieves caught in some downward spiral of desperation perhaps like William himself, resorting to his further crime of absconding in his desperation to return to his country and reunite with his family. Bleeding heart that I may be, I don't think such a deterrent worked for the desperate likes of William. The authorities may have got a better return for the wronged community by keeping him working on chain gangs and public works in his hometown, maybe. Instead, they send him to Sarah Island, a place of desperate cruelty. But perhaps even Sorrel didn't comprehend just how appalling the conditions there would be. Not just for the prisoners, but for the guards and officials too. The massive harbour was accessed from Tasmania's wild west coast, with the entrance funnelling the winds whipping around the globe and slamming into Van Diemen's land there, sometimes right into the harbour. Once they'd cleared the island and cut down all the timber for the settlement, they realised just how exposed and freezing it was now going to be and they had to erect high hewn-pine fencing to provide some shelter. Dope! 
the south and west coasts bearing the brunt of the roaring forties, regularly experienced ferocious seas, and conditions were risky for all ships that had to make their way there. The harbour entrance became famous for its treacherous narrow channel, moving sandbanks and difficult tidal navigation, and it is still today known as Hell's Gates. Getting around to Macquarie Harbour was a fearful task, and many ships foundered along the way. The wilderness around the harbour was thick with valuable timber, hewn pine and hardwoods that would be useful for the colonies, and Sorrel thought he could make the settlement pay for itself by using the convict labour to harvest the wood. Clark described the work gangs there, quote, felling the gigantic trees which grew in the neighbourhood of the harbour, chained together like beasts and kept in activity by the rarely idle lash, they bore the logs to the waterside on their backs. Every now and then some feebler ruffian would fall from exhaustion, and the chain would drag him after the main body until he rose again. A visitor to the place in 1831 says that he saw something which he took for a gigantic centipede, which moved forward through the bush in the clanking of chains and cracking of the overseer's whip. Unquote. Sarah Island, where the settlement was constructed, was small, only eight hectares, that's twenty acres, and it was not a suitable environment for growing food. All supplies had to be brought in, usually from or via Hobart. The loss or delay of any supply ship might cause the settlement shortages and difficulties too. Absconders were always to be treated with the utmost severity, though, as the authorities felt that if they were not punished severely, their attempt may put ideas into others' heads. But in reality, as mentioned previously, desperate men rarely control their impulses because of a punishment someone else got, or some judge lectured about. No one expects to be caught. But with the authorities firm in their response, it was surprising then that William was not actually sent to Macquarie after all. Another manifestation of his jammy luck, perhaps. He is likely to have had his 150 lashes of cat and nine tails dispensed, though. But Hurst suggests that perhaps the ship's captain might have lobbied on his behalf, ensuring that he had some reprieve, in return for his bravery on the ship, in cutting the mast free and helping to save all on board. Lucky indeed, then. Good deeds were really rewarded that way. Once again, William seems to have worked many months in Hobart without drawing any attention, but on June 6th, the now-repaired Deveron, the same ship that William had been instrumental in saving on the journey south, was to set off now for England, carting local cargo, including hue and pine, wool and seal skins. Undeterred by his last attempt, capture and punishment, he thought to try to get home again. And he wasn't the only one. William was one of nine convicts that stowed away on board. Hurst suggests that this is likely to have been facilitated by sympathetic ship's crew, may be paid, or as an insurance, should their voyage turn nasty and extra hands be needed. And we are reminded that many of the successful escapes were facilitated this way. But the Deveron successfully headed off into the Pacific with William aboard, and he made his way to shore when they stopped in Rio de Janeiro. I mean, I told the story a few episodes back about the Sydney Cove being wrecked off Tasmania's east coast, Honestly, some of the people associated with that venture ended up being shipwrecked and stranded every time they got on a different ship. William seems to have had all the luck in making his way back, 
In Rio, he reverted to an earlier alias, William Brown, and he got a working passage on a ship back to London, where he settled in and worked on the docks there. This time he arranged for Susan and the children to come to him, though sadly one of his three children had died in his absence. Living in Bermondsey, the family seemed to manage, with William getting work usually on coastal traders, as well as on longer voyages when available. But again the work was not always reliable, and this time he stole goods from the docked ships to supplement his income. Hurst quotes an excerpt from an article in The Times, which reported William being, quote, frequently apprehended by the Thames police officers, and repeatedly fined and imprisoned for robbing vessels. He committed other depredations, and is well known to all the London police officers, unquote. I gather here, though, that the stolen amounts involved were small enough to warrant only fines and local imprisonment, and it seems luck was with him, in that his current alias was never linked to any previous criminal record. No one knew yet that he was already a fugitive from the convict system. One arrest seems to have alarmed him, though, and on that occasion, as he was being transported to Brixton Jail, he exercised his Houdini-like skills and managed to create a hole in the side of the jail cart, and he escaped again. Time for a new identity. This time he became William Swallow, and he moved his family to a new neighbourhood in Soho where he could disappear as an unknown again. But he continued pilfering from the ships, and William Swallow now was arrested five more times, but on the sixth occasion he was caught housebreaking. This was altogether a more serious charge, and though he worked hard to create a story that might have got him off the charge, he was found guilty. Housebreaking was a capital offence, and while this may have been the first serious charge for William Swallow, he could expect to be hanged for such an offence. But once again, fortune smiled, or at least most people would have thought so. Though condemned to death, the judge saw fit to commute his sentence to transportation for life, and he was sent again to a prison hulk to await transport to Van Diemen's land. It may have seemed like a mercy, but Swallow must have felt the transportation sentence to be the equivalent to death if he must leave his family unsupported and alone for life. Probably the authorities were still unaware of his previous record, but a life exiled was pretty awful for him anyway. True to form, he did attempt to escape from the hulk, but no joy this time, and before too long he was once again on board a transport ship, the Georgiana, heading south to Van Diemen's Land. This journey was even quicker than the last, though this time not so well managed, and several convicts died on that journey. After only 117 days, they arrived in Hobart on April 18, 1829. He must have been aged around 29 years on his first visit. By this second arrival, he must have been around 37. The arrangements had changed in the intervening years, and the convicts were inspected and recorded before they left the boat and then removed to the barracks built for their reception. Good records were again usually kept from their voyage and transferred to the convict system on arrival. He was recorded as being of good behaviour on board, and once again his naval skills were used, being put to repairing sails. He must have been somewhat relieved on arrival that all the processing personnel were new, and no one recognised him as an escapee from seven years before, or by one of his previous aliases. He was instead recorded as a new first-time convict, William Swallow, convict number 999. 
The governor who'd replaced Sorrell was George Arthur, an army man also fond of strict discipline. With increasing numbers of convicts arriving, the systems and arrangements were much more rigid and formal than those William had encountered on his first sojourn. The men would work under a seven-tiered system, similar to the grades the women convicts were assigned to in the Cascades episodes, ranging from those deemed well-behaved and useful being granted tickets of leave to the opposite end of the spectrum for those requiring additional punitive punishment usually dispensed at secondary punishment sites like the dreaded Sierra Island at Macquarie Harbour, and soon afterwards the Port Arthur convict settlement. But William's luck held for now, and he was assigned as a coxswain on the guard's boat, of all things, though within a month his sail repair skills were again needed on the Georgiana, as it was being readied now to carry food from the farms around Hobart to provision Sydney. His problem remained, though, that at some point he was likely to be recognised by someone and be sent to complete his sentence in a secondary punishment outpost. So he must have thought to take the first opportunity to escape that arose. And right there, the Georgiana must have looked like a pretty good bet. So he stowed away on board as they readied to leave. Of course, this was a common ruse. Indeed, he'd used it himself before, and all departing ships were searched. This time, William was discovered. He was charged with attempting to abscond, and as I mentioned before, this was a very serious charge. He would be sent again to Sarah Island in Macquarie Harbour, and it may be around this time that the authorities recognised him as Walker, a, quote, runaway returned under second sentence of transportation, unquote. If so, he was once again fortunate not to have been hanged. So now let's just recap William's actions since entering the criminal system. From what I can understand from Hurst and the other references, his record looks like this. William Walker, 29, transported for seven years for larceny, sailing on the Malabar, arriving October 1821. 1822, he tried to escape Hobart, calling himself William Anderson, and was caught in Sydney, sentenced to 150 lashes, and to spend the remainder of his sentence at Macquarie Harbour. Instead, he was kept in Hobart working, and in June of 1823, he stowed away on the Deveron to Rio de Janeiro. From there, he worked his way back to London as William Brown, and his family joined him there. Caught many times for thieving from the docks in London, he escaped once from a police van on the way to jail, and relocating to Soho, he reinvented himself again as William Swallow. Aged 37, he was then nabbed for housebreaking in July of 1828, his death sentence was commuted to transportation for life, sailing for Van Diemen's Land as Swallow late in 1828, arriving in Hobart on the Georgiana in April 1829. Working on the docks there, he once again was caught trying to stow away late May and may have then been recognised as being Swallow and Walker one in the same. So he was then sent to high security at Hobart Jail to await transport to Sarah Island, to continue his sentences there. So he'd certainly been working hard at getting himself back to his home country, all at high risk. How he survived the journey and the subsequent escaped death sentences each time is amazing. But he was about to give it one more go, on the Cyprus in the coming months. Just as an aside, notes on his online criminal record, and I'll put a link to those in the reference list, Placed there by D. Wong on 6th of April 2016, notes the following. Quote, 
After he had been transported, his wife, with whom he had three children, married another man called Fluke. On hearing that her husband was back in the country again and in Lambeth, she went and lived with him for a few days, but husband Fluke demanded that she return to him. She then gave information of William's whereabouts so that he may be got rid of. He was then apprehended. Unquote. Now, D. Wong does not cite a source for this information, so I'm not sure which period this refers to, but it's not surprising or unusual, perhaps, that a woman left behind after her husband is transported may treat the loss as a death and remarry. I mean, how else could women in that era feed and house themselves and their children? But I'm guessing that it was more likely her new husband shopped William rather than herself, if this is true, though. Anyway, William and the other incorrigible prisoners were destined for a life of horror at Sarah Island in Macquarie Harbour, and they awaited their fate in the highest security at Hobart Jail. The brig Cyprus would transport them, and also deliver supplies and a new contingent of guards to the remote settlement. The isolated location of Sarah Island in Macquarie Harbour was part of its attraction as a penal settlement, as escape was almost impossible. Even if you were able to abscond from the work gangs on the mainland around the harbour, it was very dense bush, far from any other settlement. The convicts that tried generally perished in the attempt, cold and exposure a risk, or often starving or killing each other in the stressed and fearsome conditions. Those who managed to attempt their escape by boat might have had slightly better odds, but success depended on the skill of those on board, on the size and condition of the vessel, as well as access to equipment and supplies, so it would always be a long shot, and particularly difficult from Macquarie Harbour, with its sea access via the wild west coast. Many amongst the convict group to be sent south would have risked life and limb to avoid it. So there is no doubt, even though these poor success odds were known to most, that Swallow would have been racking his brain to identify an escape plan. He was desperate to effect a return to England. The closer he got to arrival at Macquarie Harbour, though, the more remote his chances of success. Their journey southward might be his last chance to effect an escape. So he probably began sounding out willing accomplices and considering a course of action before they even set sail. Swallow might have been an attractive leader of any such group, as his sailing and navigation skills would be invaluable if they could flee by boat. Another prisoner, one James Jones, was also an experienced sailor on his second sentence, having also escaped and made his way back to England previously. Jones was also known as John Roberts, but being heavily tattooed, he would have found it harder to reinvent himself convincingly, leaving the old Jones behind. One William Brown was another experienced sailor amongst the group, so amid the prisoners to be transported, they may have had the corps of skilled men who could then instruct any unskilled to work any ship they could commandeer. Interestingly, William Brown had been one of the aliases that Swallow had adopted in the past. Another convict very keen to escape was Leslie Ferguson, and they also had the support of James Cam and Matthew Pennell. So there was a corps of very determined men, willing, as evidenced by their frequent past attempts, to risk all to take a chance at escape. Other convicts would also have been recruited to assist once they felt they could take them into their confidence, like Robert Maguire, Michael Herring, William Templeton and George Davis. Hurst reminds us that all but one were lifers, with virtually zero chance of any release to freedom, and even less chance of returning to their families back in Britain. Desperate men will consider desperate actions. They had a choice between servitude for life in appalling conditions 
or a slim chance at freedom that Swallow and the others were offering. Being caught and hanged might seem only marginally worse than the fate that awaited them at Macquarie. The Cyprus was a government brig that was sturdy and in good shape, perfect for the regular cargo and prisoner runs between Sydney, Hobart, and the remote penal settlements to the south and southwest. The two-masted Cyprus carried a longboat and a smaller jolly boat. While the living space was described as tight, there were several cabins for officers and passengers, a secure store and plenty of hammock space for the sailors and for the military guard. Prisoners were housed in another divided compartment, and there was plenty of storage space for cargo, though the height between the decks was only four foot ten, so getting about would have been uncomfortable, and no doubt bumped heads were common. The ship's master sailed with a chief and second mate, and a crew of around ten. The vessel was loaded and readied for its voyage to Macquarie Harbour. The now 33 manacled prisoners were brought on board and inspected by the ship's surgeon, who would accompany them, along with a military guard consisting of Lieutenant William Carew, Sergeant Ricky, and nine privates from the 63rd Regiment. Armed with muskets and large bayonets, they would ensure security on the ship and relieve an existing detachment currently at Sarah Island. After more salubrious recent tours serving in the American War of Independence and in the Napoleonic Wars, they are unlikely to have been thrilled by this latest posting, to guard the worst dregs of society at the seeming ends of the earth. There were also a number of civilian passengers on board, including Curry's wife and children, two other soldiers' wives and a clerk for the settlement's administration. Hurst noted that the Hobart sheriff, probably hearing of some prison gossip, warned Curry that the prisoners had probably made plans to try and take control of the ship and that he should take extra care. So Karu and his guard also inspected each prisoner to ensure there were no weapons secreted on their persons and that their leg irons were secure before they were sent into the hold. During the voyage, the prisoners would be allowed to exercise on deck in groups of five, though each morning there would be a full muster on deck where they would be accounted for and their leg irons rechecked. A single entry hatch into the hold was also the only means to allow light and fresh air in. So, once underway, Karu allowed that hatch to remain open, where weather conditions permitted, placing two guards at the entrance and a further guard above the quarter deck for security. And so, on July 21st, the Cyprus set off on what should be a four- or five-day voyage to Sarah Island. But midwinter, when the winds were difficult to penetrate, they had to be prepared for delays. And indeed, the Tassie weather did turn it on again, and after a few fruitless attempts, losing anchors and breaking equipment, they had to abandon the attempt to sail west around the southeast Cape, and they retreated first to the shelter of Research Bay, just a little north of the Cape, before heading back to Hobart for repairs. Once completed, the Cyprus set off again on August 5th. By now, you won't be surprised to hear that once put out to open water, the gales again beset the voyage. William Brown had somehow been identified as an experienced seaman and was already drafted to help with the ship's crew, though a leg iron was left on one of his legs for security to identify him and perhaps hobble him a little. And with progress difficult, Swallow and Ferguson were also then released from below deck to help the crew keep control of the ship in the heavy weather. But after a difficult night, Captain Harrison opted for shelter at Research Bay to wait out the storms before heading on around the Cape. Research Bay was named by the French explorers, along with Bruni Island and the more obvious Doncaster Channel, among many other places. 
Being spacious and having room for shelter from all wind directions, Research Bay was an attractive refuge, with water and wood available on shore and fish and shellfish plentiful. Being so close to the southeast cape, which could dish out atrocious tide and weather conditions, it was the perfect refuge point only 15 kilometres north if progress could not be made around the cape. But it was very isolated. Indeed, it still is remote to some extent, and was generally only visited by the occasional sheltering ship doing a Port Macquarie run, or being battered on its way to Hobart, or by the occasional whaler. There were certainly no roads or tracks recognisable to the British newcomers leading out of the bay, and the bush around was thick and unyielding. So there they laid up for five days, waiting for a more favourable weather window to get around the Cape and head west. We forget, perhaps, particularly when whinging if the day we expected to experience failed to meet the reported forecast, what a brilliant job weather scientists do these days in modelling from data measured remotely the weather patterns likely to come our way. No sensible sailor would head out before getting the forecast of what might be ahead in the coming days. How terrifying not to at least have a clue that a massive low was coming your way, but instead just venturing out to sea blind to the approaching environment. While anchored in the bay, the prisoners were kept to the usual muster and exercise routine. But a few days in, Swallow became ill. Hurst records the doctor diagnosing, quote, a stricture of the urinary canal and inflammation of the stomach, unquote. And he underwent some kind of minor medical procedure and was placed in the upper decks to recover. Hurst suggests that some later thought this incident was a scam by Swallow to get himself on the upper decks. But if so, having to undergo that medical procedure would have perhaps been an unexpected and scary price to pay. Still, he seems to have recovered well. At dusk on August 14th, some of the senior officers, Carew, Dr Williams and the first mate John Byrne, decided to go fishing. One of the privates and a convict, John Pobjoy, were given the task of rowing the longboat to a suitable site further along the bay. Noting the longboat was away and several of the other crew were below decks at supper, Swallow and his accomplices decided that time was right to carry out their plan, and it all kicked off pretty quickly. Additional prisoners had quietly made their way up on deck, and when Private Scully noticed and ordered some back below decks, they refused, saying Karu had allowed them to come up for air. While he was distracted arguing with them, Maguire knocked him unconscious from behind. Another prisoner attacked the second private on duty, but Private Wallace was able to dive to safety down the hatch, though leaving his weapon behind. The quarter-deck guard, James Devine, was not so lucky, also being knocked out. The deck guards now being dealt with, the convicts closed the hatches, trapping the remaining soldiers below decks. Things had begun well, and the prisoners above now found the equipment to remove their leg irons. Those prisoners on deck that did not wish to mutiny were told to lie down and keep still. Wisely, though, Swallow had his men guard the ship's compass at the helm so that it would not be removed by anyone loyal enough to try and foil their escape. The captain emerged from his cabin but was easily overpowered and Hurst suggests that the crew, not wishing to risk their lives, also kept out of it, surrendering quietly. But the soldiers, perhaps more battle-hardened by their earlier campaigns, were willing to keep trying to regain control, and disarming them proved dangerous. They fired shots whenever the hatch was opened, with one shot passing between Swallow's arm and chest. Really, could that man have been any luckier? 
Eventually, the trapped soldiers were forced into submission, with threats of boiling water being poured down the hatch, or a tub of burning pitch which would suffocate and smoke them out. And recognising defeat, they finally came up, one at a time. Their weapons were handed over, and they were tied up and seated on the deck. The fishing party, though, had heard the shot, and they assumed it was a signal to indicate another ship had arrived in the bay, and so they began making their way back. Of course, when they got close to the Cyprus, they realised the convicts had taken control. When Carew tried to climb aboard, Matthew Pennell aimed and shot directly at him. Fortunately, the shot failed. Flashed in the pan, as they say. As did the next two tries. But Carew kept his wits, and he continued to try and persuade the convicts into retreat, quote, begging of the prisoners to surrender the ship up to him, and he would think no more of the business, unquote. <laughs> but they rejected his suggestions. He then asked for his sword, which was denied him, and finally he asked for his wife and children, and they were immediately brought to him and put into his boat, along with the wounded soldier. Indeed, all the officials and passengers were transferred to the boat. Hobjoy, the prisoner who had been rowing the boat for the fishing officers, was brought back on board the Cyprus, and some of the mutineers then rowed the longboat to shore, guarded by other men with weapons in the accompanying jolly boat. Back on the Cyprus, Swallow asked for prisoner volunteers to help crew the mutinied ship, and those not keen on joining them would also be taken to shore. And it would seem that Pobjoy was at first undecided about which way to go. Each boatload of passengers, crew, soldiers and prisoners, were dropped at a different and distant location along the shore of the large bay. The distance between the drop points was intended to give the mutineers time to get organised on board before any of the landed groups could consolidate and attempt any response, though with no boats left with them I'm not sure how they might have been able to threaten the ship anyway. It was dawn before they all managed to gather in one place, and by then the Cyprus was underway. Interestingly, the sources seem to record differing accounts about Pobjoy's initial behaviour with many impressions coming from the numerous first-hand reminiscences and reports, some suggest that he may have been part of and in on the original plans, changing his mind only later as they were readying to depart. Some even suggested that he jumped ship only at dawn and swam to shore himself. There seemed to have been conflicting and contradictory evidence in the materials Hurst looked at too, and I note that Popjoy is sometimes recorded as Popjoy in the documentation. But much of the evidence presented by those involved in the later inquiries is far from uniform. I think we can imagine, amongst this cohort, there was not always the strongest adherence to truth-telling, <laughs> and there was a lot to be gained by individuals telling their stories to show themselves in the best light possible, or manipulating it to best serve the desired outcome. Indeed, we're implying here that Swallow may have been the leader amongst this group, but in some of the songs or early recountings of this story, others are charged with inciting the mutiny. Clark, for instance, wrote, quote, A prisoner named Ferguson was the ringleader. At worst, he said, it is but death, and which of us wishes to live, unquote. And so Swallow and the others joined in, Swallow becoming their leader because of his sailing and navigation skills. So the exact behaviours, intentions and actions of individuals may by now never be proven, but we can certainly get the gist. One way or another, the convict Pobjoy, knowing that the mutineers would take the boat and try for freedom, before the mutiny or only afterwards, decided to stay with those on shore anyway in the end. 
Indeed, he proved to be very helpful in ensuring their survival. The mutineers had left the shore parties with about a week's supply of food, some of the personal belongings, tools and equipment, including a tinderbox, musket and some ammunition, which was perhaps intended to allow them to hunt or to protect themselves from the Aboriginal parties that might discover them, as this was Nyanoni country in the southeast. They also left a couple of chooks and some fresh mutton, so the 44 stranded passengers had a fighting chance of survival, if another ship called in for shelter in the next few weeks at least, and some potential for catching some wild game, fish and shellfish to augment their supplies. But with their general lack of knowledge and ability to successfully live off the land around them, perhaps survive there for only a relatively limited time. They were left no boat, and the nearest settlement was a convict outpost and timber operation at Birch's Bay, about an 80-kilometre or 50-mile hike along the coast, through uncharted and dense bush. But over the following days they would need to consider their options, or risk starving there. By dawn, August 15th, when the wind came up with the sun, the cypress was able to hoist sail and hightail it out of the bay, heading instead for freedom. It had been an excellent plan, executed with a minimum of violence. Even the weather was with them. Swallow and the others had done well. In capturing the cypress en route, they had given themselves perhaps the best chance they might ever get to make a successful escape. Once at Macquarie Harbour, it would have been almost impossible to find viable opportunities. Here, they had a boat which had a hold full of cargo and supplies that had been intended for resupply of the Macquarie Station. And they had a number of fit men aboard, some even with previous sailing experience. Their bingo card looked full. Their ducks were most certainly all in a row. Fortune was smiling, smiling, smiling on William Swallow. He'd made it to Sydney once before, in a small boat, but here he had the luxury of a sturdy ship, 10,000 pounds of flour, 6,000 pounds of salt beef, 4,000 pounds of pork, 240 pounds of tea, along with rum, wine and even some live sheep and chickens. They could make their escape from the immediate waters, consolidate their plans and sail anywhere they wanted. Well, wind and tide permitting in an age of sail. The only thing lacking really were charts for the open oceans. But Swallow could wing it if they were careful and chose their routes well. Along with William Swallow and his accomplices mentioned earlier, Jones, Brown, Ferguson, Cam, Pennell, Maguire, Herring, Templeman and Davis, were John Beveridge, Samuel Thacker, Alexander Stevenson, John Denner, William Watts, Thomas Bryant, Patrick Lynch and Charles Towers. Most were originally transported for housebreaking or picking pockets, but must have committed further felonies in Australia to be additionally punished and sent to Macquarie Harbour. So they had 18 on board to sail their escape vessel. Swallow, as we might expect, was chosen as their ship's captain, as one of the early instigators and the most skilled navigator, and, in appropriate pirate protocol, the men agreed to other positions, allocating tasks to ensure the ship could sail smoothly. Ferguson became lieutenant, Jones the first mate. The weapons on board were distributed amongst the mutineer crew, along with shares of the money and clothing they found on board, and they voted for their destination, America. But despite their recent sojourn at Research Bay, they would need more water and fuel stores for such a long ten-week voyage. So they struck east first, towards New Zealand, where they could take on more water and ready themselves for the major ocean voyage north. 
So we might leave the story there for today and finish it off next month. The mutineers were delighted at their success, optimistic at their prospects, and ready to work together to make their plans materialise. The castaways on shore at Research Bay were considering their options to ensure rescue. They'd made themselves as comfortable as could be with the limited materials left to them, using tea tree saplings to build makeshift shelters and building a small raft to allow shellfish gathering to augment their supplies. So next month we'll finish off this story to see how the mutineers fared, where they headed to and the obstacles they encountered, as well as following the fortunes of the castaways left at Research Bay and the response of the authorities once they became aware of the Cypress's fate. And indeed, some new evidence related to the story has recently been discovered, so I'll relate all of that in the coming episode. This month, my podcast recommendation has no connection to the historical subjects I often recommend. This time, I'm drawing your attention to Tim Crow's Thinking Nutrition podcast. As a science communicator, dietitian, and with a 25-year research career spanning molecular biology and clinical nutrition, Dr. Crow is well-placed to present the latest evidence-based information on a range of nutrition-related topics. Episodes range from reliable current knowledge about caffeine consumption to what we know about gut bacteria and eating for good mental health, for example. Let's face it, after a year of on and off lockdown, we can all benefit from having a look at our habits and maybe considering where we might make some healthy improvements. Tim provides the references he uses and useful links for you to follow up on the topics that grab your interest. As always, I'll place a link in with the references on my webpage at australianhistoriespodcast.com.au. Remember to have a look at the references list for this episode there as well, which includes a few related images and maps. Thanks for listening, and thanks also to those who've taken the time to leave some lovely positive reviews on the various podcast platforms. I love it that you're enjoying the work I do, and I'm really buoyed by that positive feedback. So have a safe and happy few weeks then, and part two of the Convict Mutineer's story will be coming your way next month. Cheers. Cheers.